This is Guns and Butter. Whenever I see the words Al-Qaeda, my uh, deception detector, Bonnie, immediately goes off because I know that I'm being deceived and I want to look behind it and find out who's fighting who for which interests, which oil, gold, copper, diamonds, concessions are up for grabs and how does it involve Israel. That's what I think of when I see Al-Qaeda. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Keith Harmon Snow. Today's show, AFRICOM and the U.S. Resource Wars in Africa. Keith Snow is a journalist and a human rights and genocide investigator. He reported for Genocide Watch and Survivors' Rights International on Congo and Ethiopia. Keith Snow was a genocide consultant for a United Nations body in the Horn of Africa in 2005. He reported from the International Criminal Tribunal on Rwanda in 2001 and provided expert testimony on genocide and covert operations in Africa for a special congressional hearing chaired by Representative Cynthia McKinney in 2001. He has worked in 17 countries in Africa and has received four Project Censored Awards for Africa reporting. Keith Snow's most recent articles are Northern Uganda, Hidden War, Massive Suffering, Oil in Darfur, Covert Ops in Somalia, The New Old Humanitarian Warfare in Africa, and Blood Diamond, Part 1. Keith Snow, good to see you again. Hi, Bonnie. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I've just been reading about a new U.S. combatant command, the African Command, or AFRICOM. I think we're all familiar with... uh, Central Command, which is what they call CENTCOM, headquartered in Tampa, Florida, which oversees the wars in the Middle East. There's the Northern Command, headquartered in Colorado, NORTHCOM for North America, etc. But now Secretary of Defense Gates has announced the formation of a new command, AFRICOM, in spite of the talk of peacekeeping and humanitarian works, that it looks like it's headed for full-spectrum dominance of the continent of Africa. What do you know about AFRICOM? Full-spectrum dominance, uh, Bonnie, has already been going on in Africa for the most part. You know, AFRICOM is just a recent reorganization and proliferation, further expansion of U.S. military operations on the continent. So before, for example, we had CENTCOM, Central Command, EUCOM out of, I think it's Stuttgart, Germany, which is European Command, and PACCOM, or PACIFICOM, the, uh, the Pacific Command based out of Hawaii, and those three were responsible for certain large areas of Africa. And uh, then there was a deep connection to South Africa, the U.S. military connection to South Africa. So now they've all been consolidated under one command. And this has been going on, this consolidation has been going on secretly for the last four or five years, but just openly been announced to be AFRICOM. And so AFRICOM will take the place of CENTCOM which, uh, and EUCOM and then Pacificom. Pacificom was formerly responsible for Madagascar, Comoros, and the Seychelles, the three islands off the coast of East Africa in the south. And of course, you know, people should be aware that Madagascar, when we talk about Pacificom, Madagascar currently has a major mining operation undertaken by Barrick Gold Corporation with George Bush Sr. as one of the advisors and Brian Mulroney, the former Prime Minister of Canada. So when we talk about military control of places like Madagascar, we're talking about, you know, making sure that we can get at our mining interests or our oil interests or our 
other intelligence surveillance and um, clandestine operations that are going on you know in Africa for these resources for control of these resources the uh, Pentagon's involvement in Africa, for example, in Djibouti, in Sudan, in Eritrea, in Uganda. Uganda and Djibouti and Ethiopia today are the biggest concentrations of American military power on the continent. And this is, you know, the concentrations are, are extremely significant. In Djibouti, for example, the Joint Task Force for the Horn of Africa in Djibouti has thousands of U.S. covert operations soldiers who are responsible for committing snatch-and-grab black operations in, in Somalia, for example, or in Sudan, or in Eritrea, or in Uganda, or in Rwanda, or in Congo, and Uganda as well. Major base of U.S. military support on the continent and alliances with Museveni, the president of Uganda. And that's why, for example, we hear about certain conflicts and certain so-called humanitarian disasters. They are humanitarian disasters, but people need to be aware of the fact that some disasters, humanitarian disasters, are amplified magnified and brought into our, our awareness and our attention through psychological operations, and other disasters are completely off the radar screen. So Darfur, for example, is on the radar screen. It's a massive psychological operation against the American public today and against, of course, people in Africa on a military level. But northern Uganda, the conflict in northern Uganda, is completely off the radar, absolutely and completely in blackout or whiteout. And we're talking about you know, the life and death of hundreds of thousands of people trapped on these concentration camps which have been set up by the Museveni government with the alliance of the United States military. And these people are subject to horrible, horrible conditions and raped by Ugandan soldiers. But all we ever hear about, if we hear about anything out of Uganda, is the Lord's Resistance Army, this so-called terrorist Christian fanatical organization that's committing atrocities and taking little children. I mean, you read this in Vanity Fair and The New Yorker. But you don't get the full story, which is that the biggest atrocities are being committed by the Ugandan government. So the CENTCOM, EUCOM, and PACIFICOM have always played a role in maintaining the military structures that are important to dominance in Africa. But now they've all been consolidated under this one AFRICOM, which again, it's the growth, consolidation, and expansion of a fascist U.S. military enterprise, empire. And AFRICOM will allow, with new funding, new funding commitments, more infrastructure. Expansion means more money being pumped into it, more personnel can be assigned to it. And it's connected to USAID, for example, which is supposedly a humanitarian development organization, you know, the United States Agency for International Development, USAID. That's another euphemistic term like humanitarian and peacekeeping or peace monitoring like the African Union forces that people just need to see through for what it is. It's an arm of the U.S. military. USAID is an arm of the U.S. military, but it does things in different ways that puts the appearance of, of uh, construction or development or humanitarian or conservation on it, and it funds groups in very nefarious ways. You mentioned the crisis in northern Uganda. What is going on in northern Uganda? What is this crisis? Acholi land, the Acholi people in northern Uganda, indigenous people of the north. Uganda, of course, is a vast territory north of Kampala. And um, since 1986, when President Museveni, who's been in power for the last 20-something years, took power through the National Resistance Army, the Acholi land, Acholi land itself and the people, the Acholi people, have been basically persecuted by the government of Uganda. It's completely out of the media 
It's, there's been no reporting on it at all. There's been very few human rights reports over the years, but recently it's come to some attention because there's such a massive crisis going on there. And finally, some United Nations officials have actually done an investigation and reported on the death camps in northern Uganda. So the 1987, when Museveni seized power, he did that with a bunch of Tutsis in his National Resistance Army, one of which went on to become the Director of Military Intelligence for Museveni in Uganda. And he held that position until 1989, 1990, when Paul Kagame, the then Director of Military Intelligence for President Museveni, led the U.S.-backed military campaign to overthrow the government of Rwanda, which was launched in October of 1990. And just previous to that, even at, at the time, I think in October, uh, Paul Kagame was at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, doing military training with the United States military. And so Museveni seized power in 86, and they immediately started to oppress the people in the north, the Acholi people. And sometime in the 90s, there arose a significant so-called rebel army against, so-called against uh, the Museveni government. Because I say that so-called because the rebels appear to be backed by powerful factions that include some officials from the Ugandan military and the Ugandan government. As long as you have a rebel force that's fighting against you, you can always justify the need for more weapons and more aid. And Uganda has received massive amounts of humanitarian aid and development aid, which they've converted directly into weapons. And, and they, they use the justification that they're being attacked on the uh, western border by certain groups that are in Congo that are, that are against the government of Uganda, including the Alliance for Democratic Forces, the ADF, who base themselves in the Ruwenzori Mountains and in the Virungos National Park area, and the Lord's Resistance Army, who comes in from Sudan and from the Congo. They've been based there at different times and receives support from the Khartoum government. Lord's Resistance Army receives some support from the Khartoum government, which, of course, is an Islamic fundamentalist terrorist government as defined by the United States, even at the same time as the Bush government is working with them. So you've got these different factions fighting against the Museveni government, providing the Museveni government a, uh, a necessary opportunity to say, well, we need more weapons and we need more aid, and they use that aid to grow the military within Uganda. But this Lord's Resistance Army since 1995 has also been snatching children and, and using them. It's a fanatical Christian cult, basically. But there's some suggestion that it's completely designed within the intelligence community because of the kinds of things that they do. The government's response to the LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army, and at the same time its response to the people of the North is to clear them, to forcibly relocate them onto these camps, these death camps. They've become death camps. And there's something like more than 73 camps. In one document they counted 73 camps. And the camps have anywhere from 1,000 to 50,000 people in them. And they're provided low-level security by the government of Uganda but the security is clearly designed not to protect them because the government of Uganda has massive military capabilities. It's like the second largest, most powerful army in the region after Ethiopia, which has also converted all this aid money to, to weapons for the, you know, its relationship with the United States. So Uganda's military capacity to defend these camps is very significant, but they don't defend them. The Lord's Resistance Army raids and conscripts children and, and steals and kills all the time. But the number one killer in the region, in the northern Uganda region, is not the Lord's Resistance Army. You only see articles in the Western press about the nasty Lord's Resistance Army, the Christian fanatical cult. And you see these articles by Christopher Hitchens in Vanity Fair 
or by John Prendergast, you know, from the International Crisis Group, who's a national security agency, National Security Council official from the Clinton administration, who's just written this book about Darfur with Don Cheadle. So he's talking about Save Darfur and all this other nonsense. But they will report on how the Lord's Resistance Army is this fanatical Christian cult that's killing all these people. But they don't ever get into the fact that the people that are killing the most people are the Ugandan military, the Ugandan military, the Ugandan People's Defense Forces themselves, who are supposed to provide security for these camps, are the number one terrorist threat to these something like 1.2 million internally displaced people in the northern Ugandan region. So some, some areas of Acholi land, like 350,000 out of 400,000 people in the Gulu area, have been forcibly displaced onto these camps. And the displacement started by the Ugandan military started as early as 1993 or maybe even earlier. I've seen documents that say 93. And there were massive round two or third round displacements which started in 1996 and peaked out somewhat in 2004. And as I said, they've herded. They kill, they rape, they torture, they threaten, they force these people. They, they've bombed entire villages and burned them down to get the people to forcibly to move on to these IDP camps. And then they don't provide the security. The LRA comes in and attacks them. And they send in the media, the Western media, who says the LRA is a nasty terrorist organization. That's what they've been defined as officially, I think, by the Bush, Bush administration. And at the same time, the Ugandan military is the one, the, that's the one who's actually doing most of the killing, most of the oppressing, most of the torturing. You know, these are intentional, extrajudicial killings orchestrated from the highest level. This kind of uh, repression within the country is from the highest level of the Ugandan government. What is the name of the recent article that you've written on northern Uganda? In that article, you mentioned the conscious depopulation of the land in northern Uganda for resource development. It's called Northern Uganda, Hidden War, Massive Suffering, Another White People's War for Oil. And it's based on the fact that the ABC News just recently published something on their, their blotter website about this hidden conflict. And they sent in some camera people whose tapes were stolen by the Ugandan military. And they weren't allowed to do the reporting that they tried to do. So ABC is ostensibly concerned about Northern Uganda and about ostensibly concerned about reporting on this. But when people started posting comments on the, on the ABC website about the situation in northern Uganda, a lot of comments were deleted because they were saying what the ABC News apparently doesn't want people to understand, which is that it's not about Africans fighting each other and it's not about the Lord's Resistance Army. And even the ABC article itself is exceptional in that it's, it's paying attention to the fact that oppression is being committed, brutalities and atrocities are being committed by the Ugandan People's Defense Forces, the government of Uganda but it still doesn't want to allow these comments on its website which point to the fact that this is all about oil or gold or depopulation to clear the land for these massive oil concessions that exist in the region. Now in your article, don't you mention that over a million people have been displaced into these camps and that over a thousand or fifteen hundred die a week? Yeah, it's like fifteen hundred people dying every week. Uh, that's the recent statistic. And 1.2 million people displaced as of uh, statistics from, I think it was April 2007. And we know that the Ugandan government is doing this. Do we know on whose behalf they are depopulating the northern portions of Uganda? Well, yes and no. I mean, the only answer, reasonable answer you can come up with is for the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and the oil companies that are involved. The Ugandan government in the north is also working with these uh, private military companies that are associated with these resource extraction firms like Heritage Oil and Gas, which is an oil company, 
and gas company, and um, Branch Energy, which has been going after some of the gold. So I've got a photograph that shows the, the British attaché from the British High Commission, the defense attaché from the British High Commission, checking the gold samples in northern Uganda with branch energy officials and some South African mining executives. Now, that's very significant. The defense attaché from the British High Commission, so that's an embassy official checking gold samples who's a defense man. So you're connecting directly the gold and the military from Britain with the mining that's going on in the region. And this, of course, is not reported anywhere. So it appears to be about clearing the land of all these Africans. We can't have African tribal people living in places where we want to exploit the oil and the gold and the... Possibly there's other, re I expect there's other resources that have been found that we haven't yet been able to reveal or uncover. It may be uranium, because just across the border in Sudan, just a little bit north of there, you've got uh, the Darfur region, which has, in the very south of Darfur, on the border with Central African Republic and Congo, there's uh, uranium and copper mines. And I expect that this vast northern Ugandan region also has other minerals. But if you look at the oil maps that I've posted on my website, from the oil industry itself, you see that northern Kenya, the Turkana region, Turkana, Lake Turkana region is one massive set of concessions for the oil companies. And so then you've got the oil concessions that stretch up into northern Uganda on the western side, which include these three companies, Heritage Oil and Gas and Tullo Oil and Hardman Resources. And those are British, American, Australian, Canadian companies, meaning that their principals, their directors are from those countries. And if you look... In the northern area, just north of there, of course, you've got Darfur and South Sudan, which is all massive oil concessions. So this is all about oil, even if we haven't yet found a map which shows that the northern Uganda region has been divvied up into other concessions than the one that my map shows. And also you mentioned the Acholi people that are the people in northern Uganda that are being removed. Are, are these a different people than the rest of the people in Uganda? Yeah, there are. My understanding is, I haven't been up to studying them there to understand at that level, but they're a minority group who uh, stand in the way of oil development and economic profits. I'm speaking with journalist and human rights investigator Keith Snow. Today's show, AFRICOM and the U.S. Resource Wars in Africa. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Keith, let's talk about what's known as the Horn of Africa. That's in eastern Africa, and the countries there, Djibouti, Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya. Apparently, there are vast oil reserves there, particularly in the southern Sudan and in Somalia. And of late, there's been a war in Somalia, an invasion by Ethiopian troops supported by the United States. And I guess this latest war began in December of 2006. Could you talk about that Ethiopian invasion of Somalia and what is going on there now? I understand in Somalia now there are more refugees than there are in Iraq or Darfur. Yeah, to remind your listeners, Bonnie, I worked in Ethiopia as a United Nations genocide investigator in 2005, and I had previously worked there for Survivors' Rights International and Genocide Watch in South Sudan as well as in Ethiopia, where there's this genocide going on against the Anuak people and against other indigenous groups and other minorities in Ethiopia. Ethiopia today is the largest U.S. military base of power in 
Africa. It's getting almost all, like 90% of all aid money goes to Ethiopia, and it's all been converted into weapons. All of this uh, aid for arms scandal has not been reported anywhere. So over the last 10 years, and, you know, last five years, whatever, in Ethiopia with our partner Meli Zanawi, the president of Ethiopia, the United States has created a situation where we've armed and trained massive covert forces that have gone into now into Somalia, the invasion of Somalia. But these Ethiopian troops invaded Eritrea in 2000, and that war contributed to hundreds of thousands of refugees, if not more, and massive loss of life. And it was, at the time, orchestrated by the Clinton administration. So Ethiopia today has been serving as a base for the Ethiopian Djibouti, especially the combined joint task force Horn of Africa, which is the Pentagon, which will be under currently under the new AFRICOM structure. And that includes Kenya, Djibouti, Ethiopia, Somalia, and Eritrea. And I don't think it officially includes Sudan, but I believe personally that they're sending programs, covert programs into Sudan. And then you have the covert operations base uh, Camp David in Herso, Ethiopia, which has a couple thousand 3rd Infantry Division and 10th Mountain Division, which are all special forces for the U.S. military. And there's all kinds of military programs that have been going on in the Horn of Africa. And for example, the CIA has a base station in Djibouti. I think it's Camp Limonier, or near there. That's the Pentagon's base. Maybe it's near there. But, the, but they have a base station where they launch unmanned aerospace vehicles, Predator drones. And, you know, if you see Predator drones in the media, they're always defined as these uh, intelligence assets that do surveillance and intelligence, and that's the limitations of their capabilities. But the fact is that they're weapons delivery platforms, and they're used for that purpose, and they're launched from Djibouti against Yemen, or Yemen is a popular one, or Saudi Arabia, or Sudan, or Somalia, which is the current thing. And again, these are CIA assets. The Pentagon certainly has its own unmanned aerospace predator drones because it's such a big business that, you know, Rumsfeld authorized massive increases in the funding for the production of unmanned aerospace vehicles. I think it was in 2001. So the oil, from, the oil comes right across from Saudi Arabia and Yemen. It's all one part of one gigantic, vast oil, underground oil field across the Straits of Hormuz. And in Yemen, I think I've said this before, in Yemen, for example, I think it was George Bush Sr. Who, who personally went to Yemen to christen some oil refineries that were built by Hunt Oil back in, I think it was 1989. And all of the Somalia stuff today has to go back to the 1980s when all of this oil was discovered in Somalia, which led to you know, the cataclysm in the 80s where the U.S. turned a, an otherwise quiet state of Somalia into a massive refugee humanitarian disaster, uh, funding and arming different factions that created all of this warlordism and culminated in 1991-93 timeframe in the U.S. invasion, which led to, again, a massive loss of life and was all reduced to the specter of a few American Marines being dragged through the streets of Mogadishu, which is just nonsense because hundreds of thousands of people suffered or lost their lives and there were millions of refugees at the time and then we just pulled out. We moved on to Rwanda. We went right straight to Rwanda, where we finished overthrowing the Rwandan government of the time, supported by France, called it the Rwandan Genocide. And just kind of Somalia overnight disappeared from the scenes, the public scenes. And we had always, over the 90s and into the 2000 time frame, this argument that, well, well, we can't have another Somalia in Africa. And at the same time, the U.S. has massive operations going on all over the continent. And they did in the late 90s and into 2000. 
So today, that oil in Somalia stretches from Yemen across the Straits of Hormuz all the way into Somalia. Sudan is vast oil fields, and the Sudan oil fields go straight from the Red Sea right down through Sudan, right smack through Darfur. They stretch into Chad, and they go into Uganda and, and on the border of Uganda and Congo. And we can talk about who's after this oil, who's involved, and why the fighting in Darfur is not about genocide as much as it's about factions from the United States fighting over the oil. Keith, let's talk about Somalia. After the United States left, supposedly, in the 90s, warlords. The warlords are running Somalia. And then in the recent past, the Islamic courts were in charge in Somalia, headquartered in Mogadishu, and there was peace for the first time. Could you talk a little bit about that history and how the Islamic courts came to uh, take over? Sadly, Bonnie, Somalia is one of the countries I have not visited. I visited all the countries around it except Djibouti. So, you know, my understanding is a little bit uh, constrained by the fact that I haven't been there, but I have studied it extensively, and I can give you a picture that's quite different from what you see in the media. For example, we, you know, the United States pulled out on this platform of, of disaster and you know, a couple dead Marines being dragged through Mogadishu, and then it became a Hollywood film supported by the Pentagon, which is a nasty piece of propaganda. And throughout the 90s, there was uh, U.S. factions were, were arming and training different warlords, and so there was a lot of warlordism going on in Somalia. And Somalia in the 90s, while it was not in the media, was a site of massive humanitarian disaster, massive loss of human life. It was rated, by, for example, by Doctors Without Borders as the top humanitarian crisis several, several times in the late 90s and early 2000 time frame. And that's, that's a very tenuous rating because at the same time you had, you know, four, five, six million people being killed in the Congo and you had this refugee and famine crisis going on in South Sudan, not in Darfur, but in South Sudan. And that was, I think, 1998, 99. But Somalia throughout the 90s and into 2000, 2001 was definitely being armed. There were factions being armed and trained by the United States. It was off the media's agenda. And suddenly... Basically, in 2006, things came to a head when uh, the U.S. in early 2006 sent in a lot of money. Apparently, it was the CIA who sent in the money, hundreds of thousands, like 100 to $150,000 a, uh, a month was going to different warlords in Somalia, in Mogadishu, who were fighting in early 2006. So the U.S. was completely behind this war in Somalia, which began early in 2006, not at the end of 2006, which is when the New York Times finally did a story about it. So the fighting in 2006 was backing these warlords, even against the State, the own, the state Department's own uh, complaints from, from Nairobi, for example. The U.S. Embassy in Nairobi is very central to the conflict in Somalia and the conflict in Kenya, which you don't hear about, conflict in Uganda, for example. You, the, the Nairobi Embassy is a... Is a base for the Pentagon for the most part and intelligence assets. But one of the State Department officials in Nairobi complained in 2006 that we were supporting the wrong people, we were stirring up more problems against our own interests, which would be business interests, in Somalia. The guy was promptly transferred to the U.S. Embassy in Chad, and this was in 2006. By April of 2006, the Union of Islamic Courts was fighting against the U.S.-backed warlords. Ethiopia and Eritrea both had major involvement, had troops all over the place in Somalia early in 2006. The U.S. was supporting Ethiopia, and, it, and this would be the Bush administration. The Bush administration very much aligned with the Ethiopian position, and the, I guess we could say, democratic 
or Democrat position in Somalia would be backing Eritrea. So you have this bipartisan involvement in war in Somalia and Sudan and Ethiopia versus Eritrea, which, re which can be reduced down to Democratic versus Republican interests in the United States at one level. And it's all about levels. You know, go to a deeper level and we've got in involvement of China versus after this oil, or we've got involvement of Libya or Saudi Arabia. But at the top level, or at a certain level, there's this Bush versus Clinton or Bush versus the Democrats conflict, as in Darfur, to, to gain control of these resources. So in April, May of 2006, in Somalia, in Mogadishu, there was massive fighting. And it was completely outside of the media's reporting. There was nothing at all about it in May, May of 2006. And it culminated in, in late May with, with a victory by the Union of Islamic Courts. Now, over the last 10 or 12 years in Somalia, the, the, the Islamic factions have created more peace and development than anybody in the last 25 years. And that, the United States has been deeply involved since the early 80s, so that means more peace and development than you know, anything the United States could possibly hold up as an example. But the union, you can't have the Union of Islamic Courts. I mean, just the very name suggests that it's going to be an enemy of the United States. The Union of Islamic Courts was not and is not a fundamentalist Islamic Taliban-type insurgency or government. That's not what they want. They want a peaceful state of Somalia controlled by the Somali people bringing in different factions which, which make it a constitutional or transitional government of cooperation. But the U.S. won't allow that because they are Islamic and Isla a preponderance of Islamic interests. So by, by June or July of 2006, there was more peace in Somalia and more development in Somalia than had, been, had occurred over the last 15 years. But again, we go back to Hunt Oil and Chevron and Conoco and these oil companies that want to control this stuff and make sure that the profits all accrue to, you know, massive profits, doesn't matter who dies in the process, accrue to strictly to Western interests, not a union of Islamic courts, whatever that means. So the whole propaganda system today is contrary to the truth in Somalia. So by late December, November 2006, the U.S. had sent in massive military uh, weapons, weaponry through this guy, Victor Bout, for example. He's an arms runner who's been pumping weapons into Angola and into Congo and into Uganda with the support of the Ugandan military. I mean, he's tied to the U.S. administration, different factions from the U.S. at, different, at deep levels. So he was pumping weapons in openly in, in November, and the Ethiopians had massive covert operations in Somalia already, which was completely off the radar screen. And this is all U.S. troops backed, backed by U.S. troops and U.S. US uh, logistics and U.S. military equipment and funding. And so in December, it came to a head with this so-called Ethiopian invasion of Somalia, which the press put, put an African face on it and suggested the Ethiopians were fighting against their neighbor. But it was completely backed by, you know, completely the United States. To say backed by the United States doesn't even make any sense because it was completely at the will of the United States military. And so January, U.S. military equipment was openly being used, meaning there were U.S. ships off the coast. They were sending in amphibious vehicles. There were U.S. helicopters. There was support from Ethiopia. And, and by, uh, I think by March of this year, 2007, we have 1,500 to 2,000 Ugandan military troops in Somalia. And if you see anything written about that, oh, well, the quote is, oh, well, the Pentagon's very happy that Uganda has decided to take a leading role in the peacekeeping in Somalia. This is complete 
utter nonsense, just as the, you know, the, the nonsense about hum- humanitarian and peacekeeping by the African Union forces in Darfur is complete, utter nonsense. I'm speaking with journalist and human rights investigator Keith Snow. Today's show, AFRICOM and the U.S. Resource Wars in Africa. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, it sounds like the Islamic courts were in power in Somalia for maybe six months or a little more. And then the invasion by the Ethiopian troops coordinated uh, and run by the United States. I understand that there were bombing the suburbs of Mogadishu. And I read now that there are more refugees in Somalia and leaving Somalia than there are, as I said before, in Africa and Darfur. Refugees have escaped to Kenya. Then they've been picked up and interrogated by the United States, by officials. People have been uh, tortured, not only in a basement below the uh, airport in Mogadishu, but also in Kenya. Uh, Could you talk about this extraordinary rendition that's going on? Yeah, the U.S., as you pointed out, has uh, been picking up refugees from in Kenya. The, in Kenya, there's two air bases that the U.S. uses. This is massive U.S. military, establ- established U.S. military support in East Africa, in Kenya. And there's also the port of Mombasa, which is, a, which is a U.S. Navy. I mean, it's U.S. Navy, U.S. soldiers all over the place. Kenya is a U.S.-controlled base of military operations. And so... Anybody fleeing Somalia across that border is immediately picked up, whether they're refugees or political dissidents or innocent people, it doesn't matter. They're picked up. Some of them have been tortured clearly by the the covert forces, intelligence assets, which are from the United States, if you call that an asset, to pick up innocent people and torture them. That's an asset. So they're picked up and tortured in Kenya to try to find out, you know, who's arming, perhaps who's arming these different factions or what's going on in the Union of Islamic Courts or, you know, you can imagine what they're up to. It's the same kind of nonsense that they do down in Guantanamo. It's terrorism. So Ethiopia has also supported this. If people flood across the border between Ethiopia and Somalia, that's the Agaden Basin, which, again, is a massive, if you look at the oil maps on my website, massive uh, concessions controlled by Hunt Oil Company and other U.S.-owned concessions or controlled concessions. And another point to make quickly is that the reason that Ethiopia is so concerned about Somalia is they want the U.S. and its, its, its factions in Ethiopia want a clear water port, an open water port for their operations in Ethiopia. And currently that, the ocean is cut off from Ethiopia. So to be able to control Somalia means to have a, a direct line to the ocean for Ethiopia, which is fundamental to several things, not only oil. So back to Kenya, there's more refugees coming out of Somalia and in Somalia today than, I think, than anywhere else on the continent. Saying that, in northern Uganda today, there's maybe 500,000 or 600,000, I'm not sure of the numbers, but people that have been trapped on these concentration camps that are literally dying like flies. They're being raped by Ugandan soldiers every day. You know, this is occurring, and uh, all kinds of atrocities being committed by Ugandan soldiers. That also is off the media. Up in Darfur, you know, you got Eric Reeves from Smith College claiming 450,000 dead, but curiously, you won't, even see, you won't see that number cited anywhere, not even the, you know, the New York Times... Uh, Boston Globe, 
intelligence sources that I'm connected to say that maybe 70,000 people have died in Darfur. It's all been exaggerated. And this doesn't mean that the people in Darfur's lives are worth less than the people in Somalia. So we're talking about a numbers game. But the fact is, the big humanitarian crises today are Congo, Uganda, and Somalia. So in Congo, in the east, people are dying at the rate of more than 1,000 people a day. And there's just, within the last three weeks, there's been another fresh attack by Rwandan-supported militias, General Nkunda, in eastern Congo against villages in eastern Congo, in an area where I was about a month and a half ago. And uh, they've stirred up some 70 or 80,000 refugees that are on the move currently, today. And people, you know, under these circumstances, there's, there's uncountable deaths that people just die along the route. They're just thrown in the woods. They, they're, they, we have no idea how many people are really dying. And so when the International Crisis Group goes in or CARE or International Rescue Committee and they does a, do a tally of the numbers of dead, they're always grossly manipulated for particular political purposes. When I was reading the official document on the new African Command, or AFRICOM, mentioned over and over and over again is the global war on terror. And it mentioned Al-Qaeda's entry into uh, particularly the Horn of Africa. And of course, this is used as a pretext. So speaking of the global war on terror, which is used as a pretext for all of these interventions, what about the global war on terror and the, and the history of this sort of military intervention in the continent of Africa? Yeah, over the last 10 years, you know, I mean, and it goes all the way back to the first Battle of Omdurman, for example, which was a suburb of Khartoum where 70,000 or 50,000 tribesmen with spears and bows and arrows were slaughtered by the, slaughtered by the British. Sir Winston Churchill was there as a war correspondent at the time reporting on it. And so that's the history of this, this kind of thing, these massive atrocities committed by King Leopold and always connected to the United States and its interests. So that over the last five or six or seven years, well, over the last 30 years, we've had the International Military Education and Training Program, which is trained like the School of the America trains dictators and torturers and people that commit massacres in Latin America. The International Military and Education Training Program is global, and it's trained some of the worst terrorists in the world. And they currently are U.S. assets within these governments, whether it's Rwanda, Uganda, Kenya, or Mauritius, Tome and Prasip, which is a little island base for the Pentagon today. And these IMET programs have been going on since the 60s or 70s. And so you can look at the IMET and see where the budgets are and how many students have been trained in which years. And then there's the extended IMET, which was, I think, set up under Clinton, which was a new program which expanded the IMET program to allow more people to be trained and more weapons to be shipped in. And weapons deliveries programs can also be easily tracked. But then there's other programs that are not quite so open, like recent programs include... Uh, the Golden Spear, which was set up by the Pentagon, I think, in 2001. And Golden Spear was uh, involving Djibouti, Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda, and one, I think, one island country, perhaps. But Golden Spear was some sort of a clandestine intelligence program, defense program set up by the Pentagon for these countries to, to address the global war on terror. And whenever I see the words Al-Qaeda, my uh, deception detector, Bonnie, immediately goes off because I know that I'm being deceived and I want to look behind it and find out who's fighting who for which interests, which oil, gold, copper, diamonds, concessions are up for grabs and how does it involve Israel? That's what I think of when I see Al-Qaeda. So same thing with the Horn of Africa and, and uh, other programs that have gone on in the area. 
include the JSET program, which was also established under Clinton, Joint Combined Exchange Training. And then there was the Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Initiative, which was set up, I think, in 2003, after the World Trade Towers collapsed. And that involves 10 African countries in northern Africa, including uh, Morocco and the Maghreb. And then there's the Pan-Sahel Initiative that was set up in 2002. These are all secret covert operations programs. They have some public information that's been released, and sometimes you'll even see a report that was supposedly classified that's suddenly been declassified and, and picked up by the press and said, oh, well, new declassified report shows. There's, only, there's always a reason why a report is declassified. It's giving out some propaganda, some disinformation, part of the psychological operations that keeps Americans thinking that these are Africans, they kill each other, they've been dying for years, there's no resources up for grabs, and we need to stop these atrocities by Africans against Africans and help them develop themselves because they can't seem to do it themselves. So then you've got this Pan-Sahel initiative, as I said, and that was to train and equip rapid reaction forces these are like the, the shock troops that worked under Mobutu for years, trained by the Israelis and the CIA and the MI6. And the, the shock troops under Mobutu would be sent out to Lumumbashi, for example, to the University of Lumumbashi in 1991 or 1990, where thousands and thousands of innocent students were killed. They marched into the campus. They shut down the power at the university. They invaded dorm rooms. They tortured. They killed. They shot people, you know, massacred thousands of students. It was completely not reported by the press. So that's what... what uh, these rapid reaction forces are all about. And we've been setting this up under the, uh, the Pan-Sahel Initiative, which include countries like Mali, Mauritania, Niger, and Chad. What's Niger all about? I mean, we don't hear about these countries, right? What's Niger? It's the, it's the, it's the French and American base for uranium that has supplied the entire French nuclear program, which includes nuclear weapons and nuclear reactors. France is like, what, 110 reactors that run the power in France. It's essential to get their uranium out of Niger. So what's the relationship between the Pan-Sahel Initiative, covert forces, and, and the French operations in Niger? I mean, people should ask these questions. Then there's the Africa Contingency Operations Training and Assistance Program, called a COTA, which was also set up, I think, under Clinton, under the late Clinton years or early Bush II years. And the uh, Contingency Operations Training and Assistance Program is another euphemism for covert operations, which will do, you know, black operations outside of all public oversight with, with who knows how much money. When our U.S. military budget is in trillions of dollars these days, how much is being assigned to the Africa Contingency Operations and Training Assistance Program? And even when it's in, within public oversight, you know, whether it's $400 million dollars, or, or $150 million, or $2 million, you've also got this funneling of, of uh, funds in, as the CIA did into Somalia early in 2006. And that's not accounted for anywhere. These black programs, that's what a black program is. It's outside of oversight. It involves monies that we aren't aware of. It involves training and operations that will be classified perhaps forever. We'll never, ever read about what's happened. So that's what this, this all ties into, this refugee outflows from Somalia. It involves black programs. It involves massive military programs under AFRICOM. And I've only listed a few. There's also the Global Peace Operations Initiative, which is another euphemism for terrorism. And there's other programs. I'm speaking with journalist and human rights investigator Keith Snow. Today's show, AFRICOM and the U.S. Resource Wars in Africa. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. 
Well, speaking of the global war on terror, this is a global war, a global resource war, wouldn't you say? Let's talk about the oil and some of the other resources in Africa, but most specifically in the Horn of Africa, in the Darfur region of Sudan, bordering Chad, and then also in Somalia. Somalia has huge oil reserves, doesn't it? And then there's also the competition for these resources, specifically with China. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about China is you'll find the Swedish directors on some of the Chinese oil companies and uh, some of the companies working with the Chinese oil companies in Sudan, in Darfur, in South Sudan, for example, especially South Sudan, like Talisman Oil, which is uh, connected to this guy Adolf Lundin, a Swede, Adolf Lundin. And Lundin has like four or five major oil operations in Africa, including Congo, and other mining operations, including cobalt, tanking mining is a Lundin Company and Tanking Mining is in south of Congo. So it's all about these resources. I was going to make a point between the Lundin Talisman Oil Canadian. This is a Canadian company working with the Chinese. And this has been the, the material used by Eric Reeves at Smith College for years to scream genocide in South Sudan, which is that these people in South Sudan who are Christian and animists, but they don't talk about the animism, other than the fact that the, you know, the Christians are all there trying to convert them, all these Christian right-wing Christian organizations. And at the same time, the right-wing Christian organizations are shipping weapons into the Sudan People's Liberation Army. And what we get out of Eric Reeves and John Prendergast and these other so-called experts like Samantha Power who talk about this stuff is that uh, the talisman oil and the Chinese have been you know, torturing and massacring and clearing the land to get at the oil. When really, if the Chinese weren't there and talisman wasn't there, it would be Exxon. And so it's about oil operations. And the talisman and the Chinese have been working with the Khartoum government, which of course works with the Bush administration, as opposed to having worked with the Clinton administration. That's why the Clinton administration targeted the Khartoum government with the Al-Shifta Tomahawk missiles that destroyed the pharmaceutical factory. So talisman, for example, Mark Talisman is on the board of the Committee on Conscience, which is a Holocaust Memorial Museum, Committee on Conscience Against Genocide. Well, what is this guy, Mark Talisman, who's connected to Talisman Oil, doing on the Committee on Conscience who's screaming about genocide in Sudan? It makes absolutely no sense unless you understand that it's all about competing resources and competing factions and competing corporations, and it's not even about governments. It's not about the U.S. It's about factions within the U.S. fighting against partners who are partnered with factions in China or partnered with factions in Sweden or Australia, and they're fighting over the resources in Sudan. And Darfur is one massive concession that has yet to be assigned or controlled or contracted out because of the fighting there. And so if the Khartoum government were to give that concession, which they tried to do, then you would have the fighting, which occurred and began the war in Darfur, which is always defined as this genocide by the Arabs against Africans, reduced to that kind of nonsense. But the concessions in Darfur are massive, and you can see this again on my website at allthingspast.com. When you look in the Sudan Darfur section and open up the maps that I've collected, and these are not something that I pulled out of my closet. They're from the petroleum industry. They show very clearly that the amount of oil that's up for grabs in these regions. And we're not getting any of that from Eric Reeves, who decides that it's not about oil. Read the articles on my website about how he says this over and over. It's not about oil in Darfur. This is just... Deception, and it comes from USAID, who is a Pentagon offshoot, and Eric Reeves' connections to Roger Winter, who runs USAID in Khartoum. And then, previously, Roger Winter helped overthrow the government of Rwanda, which became known as the Rwanda Genocide. I'm giving you the mythologies on the surface. The mythology is peak oil. The reality is Africa has not even begun to come online. 
The only reason that Sudan has not been developed for oil previously was because it's, it's landlocked. It's much easier to pump the oil off the coast of West Africa, as they do, which is why you've got this genocide going on in the Niger River Delta, which is never reported. And you've got genocide going on in Equatorial Guinea, a little island country. Massive human rights and atrocities and war crimes committed with the, the connection between the Bush, Clinton, previous governments. It's the U.S. government, whether it's Democrat or Republican, doesn't matter. The basin of Equatorial Guinea, that part of the ocean, is all offshore oil that's being fought over by Equatorial Guinea, the United States, France, Sweden, China, all of these interests. And we don't see anything about it. But my point was Sudan is a landlocked country, and that's why the oil infrastructure hasn't been previously developed. But it's happening very quickly now. And remember, you've got Chad right next door to Sudan, which is one of the U.S. frontline countries who are perpetuating war against Sudan, the Islamic government. Chad, Uganda, and Ethiopia are the three so-called frontline countries defined by John Prendergast himself, this guy who goes around with Don Cheadle screaming about genocide, giving public conferences about how we have to stop genocide. And he was National Security Council, and in 1996 he sat down with the NSA, National Security Agency, National Security Council, Clinton administration officials, and they talked about how they're going to overthrow the government of Sudan. And then they got Eric Reeves, the professor from Smith College involved, you know, and screaming genocide in the South. And that's how these mythologies come about. But I started to say, Roger Winter, who's currently the USAID chief in Sudan, was previously involved with the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the Rwandan diaspora, the Tutsi refugees, so-called refugees, who eventually went on with the U.S. backing to overthrow the government of Rwanda in April, May, June of 1994. Uh, yes, John Pendergast has been going around and appearing on a lot of shows, and I've been reading about him. Specifically, who is he again? John Prendergast is uh, National Security Council. He was National Security Council agent for the Clinton administration. So he was within the White House, the Clinton administration directly. National Security Council. Anything that we might see that's public from the National Security Council doesn't tell us anything about what the National Security Council is really up to. We're talking black ops and covert ops, tortures and assassinations and overthrowing governments. I mean, that's what the National Security Council does. This is who John Prendergast is. Today, he's on the board of the International Crisis Group. He's their, either their director or one of their experts. He's not one of the trustees or, or deeper directors. And if you look at the trustees of the International Crisis Group, you come up with some of the worst warmongers in the history of the universe, including Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was very close with Henry Kissinger, but they had sort of a competing ideology. And, of course, Kissinger himself is on the board of the International Rescue Committee. And when the International Rescue Committee is screaming about lost life in, in Africa, you have to ask, well, how can it be that, that Henry Kissinger is on the board? And how can it be that Zbigniew Brzezinski is on the board of the International Crisis Group? And General Wesley Clark is on the board of the International Crisis Group. Then you realize that it's just a, a flak organization. Its purpose is to produce flak, whether it's true flak or whether it's false flak. It's flak. Flak means that we create a discourse about humanitarianism or the need for humanitarianism or John Prendergast for the ICG standing up and saying, well, see, the CIA has given all this money to these factions in Somalia. But the ICG supports the United States' interests in overthrowing the governments or controlling the resources in these countries. And in some cases, like in Congo, the interest of the United States at present is to establish so-called peace with control completely by the United States factions so that we can get at the resources, and that means multinational corporations. Now, you mentioned Don Cheadle traveling around and doing interviews with John Prentergast, whom you've just spoken of. Who is Don Cheadle? Don Cheadle was the Hollywood actor who played the role of 
Paul Russo Sabagina, the real-life hero of Hotel Rwanda. And on my website, you find an interview with Paul Russo Sabagina, which gives you a completely different picture about you know, what happened in Rwanda than the movie does, for example. But Don Cheadle is the Hollywood actor. And like George Clooney, he's one of these many Hollywood celebrities today who are jumping on one bandwagon or another for the purpose of, of uh, refugees and humanitarian aid and helping these poor Africans and all this, you know, we've got to help these poor Africans stuff. But who is, you know, Don Cheadle is, is, is a black guy who doesn't have any idea. We kn- they know not what they do, basically. He has no idea what he's doing. George Clooney, turns out that every Hollywood star has a director agency that's running their business, right? So George Clooney's, his direct manager, the manager of George Clooney's interests is also on the board of Save the Children. Save the Children stands to make millions and millions and millions of dollars on what's happening in Darfur. Who? The directors of Save the Children stand to make millions of dollars. Not the average white person who goes in there to try to help the people in Darfur. We're getting into the subject of the misery industry and massive humanitarian interests. But John Prendergast and Don Cheadle have recently written a book about the genocide in Darfur, and they're going around giving talks, and at public forums, like one that occurred in Los Angeles about three weeks ago, and anybody who can go to one of these forums, sometimes they're sold out, they're exclusive, you have to have the money, you have to be a big-name person to be invited, like at the Kennedy Library. And if you go, they give you a little index card to write down your question and they have to approve all questions before the questions come to the microphone. And if you ask a question that doesn't meet their standards or or diverges from what they want you to ask, you'll either be taken out or they'll shut down the microphone and go home, which is what happened in Los Angeles. So what is this about? If they're afraid of questions from the public, that's because John Prendergast's National Security Agency. They just don't want people to be bringing up questions that that make it untidy, that all the other people in the room will suddenly be confronted with some truth that they don't want to have to deal with. So what are these guys advocating for? Are they advocating for the United Nations intervention? I know that there's been a lot of uh, pressure put on the Khartoum government to allow United Nations so-called peacekeeping troops to go in to the Darfur region. Now, they have allowed uh, the African Union peacekeeping troops into Darfur, and I read that these African Union troops are trained and equipped by the U.S. military. Is that true? Yeah, you can find it. There's a website on the, currently on the web where you can see a picture of U.S. military working with Rwandan African Union so-called peacekeepers. There's nothing peacekeeping about these. There, this is a U.S. military. Of U.S. war in Darfur involves African Union troops from the U.S. They're fighting against different factions. They're committing atrocities. But this isn't going to be reported anywhere. So the whole framework of propaganda relies on the American public latching onto this word, peacekeeper. And it's as if you can't say anything else. They get stuck on the idea that the African Union is peacekeeping and monitoring. It's reality completely turned on its head, Bonnie. So the African Union is a fighting force. They're sent in with NATO support. They're getting weapons and uniforms. Show me one story in the press that defines who these rebel forces are. You know, and talks about the connection to the U.S. military and NATO to the African Union, African Union force. I hate to use, I'm not going to use the word peacekeeping because that's not what they're doing. So would you say then that the government, the government of Uganda, Djibouti, now Somalia, Ethiopia, Eritrea even, are basically fighting on behalf of U.S. interests? Not necessarily U.S. interests. They're fighting on behalf of competing interests, corporate power blocks, 
So you may have a Chinese, a Swedish, a Canadian director, all part of this company that wants to get at the oil, fighting against you know, the Hunt Oil Company, which is from Texas. So you think that the corporations are playing a bigger role than the government? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it's about governments. I think, although governments should be doing, if they were governments, they would be doing something to stop this. They have no control. And to say that suggests that anybody in the U.S. Congress today is doing anything for the American people. The U.S. Congress is a wasteland. Well, but then how, how does, but then, um, so then how do you analyze the role that the U.S. military plays? Are they working on behalf of uh, competing factions? That, that's a, a great question because I have the same struggle understanding why the U.S. is support, how the Pentagon is supporting Uganda on one side and also supporting, you know, that's the bottom line. They're supporting factions on, on different sides. The ultimate aim is to get control of, for example, Darfur so that powerful corporations can control it. Now, the U.S. military certainly is more closely aligned with Exxon than they're going to be more closely aligned with the Chinese National Petroleum Company. So that the, the ideal is to get control of the oil reserves in Sudan for more American-based corporations. Yes, that's how I would answer that question. Keith Snow, thank you very much. Thanks, Bonnie. I've been speaking with journalist, photojournalist, and human rights and genocide investigator Keith Harmon Snow. Today's show, AFRICOM and the U.S. Resource Wars in Africa. In addition to working as a genocide consultant for a United Nations body in the Horn of Africa in 2005, Keith Snow researched and reported for Genocide Watch and Survivors' Rights International on Congo and Ethiopia. He is a four-time Project Censored Award winner for Reports on Africa. Keith Snow's essays and journalism, including his most recent, Northern Uganda, Hidden War, Massive Suffering, Oil in Darfur, Covert Ops in Somalia, The New Old Humanitarian Warfare in Africa, and Blood Diamond, Part 1, are posted at his website at www.allthingspass.com. That's allthingspass.com. You can contact Keith Snow by email at keith.harmon.snow at gmail.com. That's keith.harmon.snow at gmail.com. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of the show, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Hey yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom, that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call to all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper. 
trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what this side yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me?